Ultimately, what happened is the first pilot finished his run, still had enough hours left on his clock to, to consider the flight. He called me personally and wanted to be sure I could ensure a 16-foot standing ladder um, be available because he needed to bring his own de-icer and wanted to be able to de-ice. I, I like to say that every weekend I'll get at least one horse wreck. Recently, I learned how much more dangerous cows can be than horses. Who came in having uh, cut through uh, the majority of his thumb on a table saw to the patient, and he said, "Look, I don't have time. I have to. You know, we're in the middle of bailing season. I have to get back to work. Sew it back together, do your best, and I'll be on my way." Hey, Midcast listeners, Sam here. I'm both a fourth-year medical student and your host for this episode. It's the end of summer here in Oregon at Health and Science University, and we seem to have traded the gray skies of the recent forest fires for gray skies of what can only be the beginning of the rainy season. I want to take a dive into a new topic for us here at EMACast. We often explore topics pertinent to the practice of emergency medicine, how to apply to residencies, programs of future helicopters, wilderness medicine topics, why we should learn to love patient satisfaction surveys, or how to have a massive impact on rotations. We love emergency medicine here at EMACast. This is the emergency medicine interest group after all. But becoming a board-certified physician in emergency medicine is not the only path to providing care in the emergency department. In this episode, we're going to explore the other paths that can lead to a career in the emergency department. We first look at the history of emergency medicine and how emergency departments were staffed prior to the explosion of the specialty, then into why emergency medicine is a victim of its own success, where the state of emergency medicine is, and what can be done about it. We're going to sit down with three family medicine docs and a PA to get their thoughts about their career paths. As always, if you have any questions about the show, want to see references to the articles mentioned in the show, or just send us an email, be sure to drop by emailcast.com. Before we get started... It is worth reviewing the history of how emergency rooms were staffed prior to the beginning of the specialty we now most associate with the emergency department, the emergency physician. Prior to the 1960s, the specialty of emergency medicine literally did not exist, and the practices towards emergent medical care were very different. Typically, the emergency room was staffed with residents, interns, or other hospital staff physicians. Some used a rotating on-call duty of all specialties, including psychiatry and even pathology. This care was neither coordinated nor was a pre-hospital care, with at least half of all ambulance services run by morticians or funeral directors, mostly because they had vehicles that could transport people horizontally. Often these transports were done with untrained staff. At the time, there was no national coordinating organization. 1961 was a massive year of historic significance. The U.S. was moving out of the post-World War II era, JFK was just inaugurated as the 35th president, Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first to fly in space, and Freedom Riders started to challenge segregation. This was also the year four physicians banded together to staff an emergency department together in Alexandria, Virginia, with a similar effort by 23 physicians in Pontiac, Michigan. In 1966, the National Academy of Sciences white paper, entitled Accidental Death and Disability, the Neglected Disease of Modern Society, went on to describe the poor state of emergency care in the U.S., This led to the creation of the 1966 Federal Highway Safety Act the same year, which was set standards of ambulances and training in the U.S. In parallel, the U.S. was seeing how much worse civilian trauma care was in comparison to that received by soldiers in the field during the Vietnam era. The American College of Emergency Physicians, ASEP, was formed August 16, 1968 after a meeting of eight physicians in Lansing, Michigan. They were officially recognized by the AMA just four years later, but to do so, the early leaders needed to overcome arguments against the specialty, including that there was, quote, no unique body of knowledge, no research base, 
even quoting that you will steal our patients and we have too many specialties already. There are currently 122 subspecialties recognized by the AMA. The first curriculum was provided in 1970 at University of Cincinnati. By 1975, there were 23 approved residency programs. The American Board of Emergency Medicine was established in 1976, later approved at a, quote, conjoined board, meaning that it had representatives from other, quote, parent specialties. This allowed a path known as the grandfather clause, allowing practitioners to accumulate time experience and to take the certification exam without completing a residency. This practice was ended in 1988. There is no legal or regulatory requirement that providers in the emergency department be emergency trained. With the board training and historic president, family medicine docs are the most obvious choice, just as they were prior to the creation of the EM specialty. For a variety of reasons, such as perceived liability, caseload, or bias, many urban hospitals require board-certified providers for EM in their emergency departments. The picture is very different for the rule setting, with the likelihood of being seen by a family medicine physician going up sevenfold as rurality increases. There's this rural urban continuum code. It's divided into nine levels depending on county population and if it's adjacent to a metro area. Levels eight and nine max out the scale as far as being rural as counties with less than 2,500 people and whether they are adjacent to a more populated county or not. 80 to 90 percent of these counties have no emergency physician at all. In fact, if you look at the most recent ASEP report card that came out in 2014, a report they release every five years or so, our overall national grade of emergency medicine is down to a D plus. That's from a C minus in 2009. For those not familiar with the report card, it breaks 136 objective measures down into about five core categories, including access to emergency care, quality and patient safety environment, medical liability, public health and injury prevention, in addition to disaster preparedness. Now, we'll return to the details at the end of the show, specifically for Oregon, just to satisfy our mutual curiosity. But the point is, is that we're greatly lacking in trained providers to provide health care, and almost 20% of the country lives in a rural setting. Currently, family medicine providers make up nearly a quarter of the staffing positions for emergency departments. With the demand outpacing the supply of EM docs, the opportunity for family medicine trained physicians to provide care is unlikely to diminish in the near future. So we know the demand is there. Let's meet our first guest, Dr. Keith DeYoung, as interviewed by our executive producer, Aaron Willing. I'm Aaron Willie, a third-year medical student from Oregon Health and Sciences University, and today we will be discussing an approach to emergency medicine from a unique perspective. I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Keith DeYoung. Dr. DeYoung is a family medicine physician and, well, a jack-of-all-trades who practices in rural Oregon. Thanks for being with us today, Dr. DeYoung. Oh, you're very welcome. Happy to be here. Um, I work in a clinic called Winding Waters, which is the largest clinic in the county. Uh, and I work also at Willow Memorial Hospital, which is our main uh, critical access hospital in the county. We're a pretty isolated place. So our closest hospital other than ours is about an hour and a half drive away. And um, we're frequently sending patients either by ground or by air uh, pretty far distances to First off, can you tell us how you got into family medicine? And then since this is an emergency medicine podcast, could you tell us how that ties into emergency medicine? I, as I went through my medical training, I um, really enjoyed everything that I got to experience. But I kept coming back to the idea that I really was afraid I'd get bored doing one thing in particular. And I felt like family medicine was going to be something that could give me a really 
broad scope of practice, um, treat little kids and do OB and uh, work in a hospital and an outpatient setting. And so that was really appealing to me. Um, the other part of it is just the, um, the way you can develop longitudinal relationships with people and their families. And that was also really appealing to me. I didn't want to be in a position where I'd meet somebody just one time and not get to see what happened to them in the long term and not really get to develop a relationship with them. Uh, traditionally, the family docs in the community have also staffed the emergency room. And that's happened in a variety of different formats over time. Um, but it still remains that we're the main physicians who are staffing the emergency room. And, and so it's always been that part of being a family doc here in the community has been also staffing the ER. Um, and I'll say that's kind of part of what drew me here too, because it just expanded that sort of scope of practice that much more. I've also noticed that uh, in comparison to Portland, for example, where I've worked at OHSU's emergency department, at least briefly, um, the emergency medicine here feels very similar. Um, I, you know, I feel like things are, are running in the same way. The department has kind of the same structure. Um, some of the differences I've noticed have been kind of the access to specialty care. Um, so maybe you can kind of reflect on that and tell us the, you know, the limitations that you might have here in enterprise that you wouldn't find at other academic institutions such as OHSU. Yeah, uh, you know, in our ER, the um, volume, of course, is much, much lower than a suburban or an urban hospital, but the acuity and the variety of cases that come in are, are probably pretty similar. Um, our access to specialty care, though, is very limited. And so we have a general surgeon here in town, thankfully, and he's here most of the time. Um, but other than that, we don't really have um, full-time specialists in, in any other area. Um, and so if we have someone who comes in with a broken hip, for example, we'll be transporting them somewhere else to go have their hip fixed. Um, and if someone comes in with an MI, we'll be transferring them somewhere else to see a cardiologist and have a cath. Um, if patients are really, really sick and need to be in an ICU, we're transferring folks out for that too. Um, and so we're on the phone with specialists a lot. Um, sometimes that is simply using their assistance and guidance and managing them here in our hospital. And sometimes that means transferring folks to another place to, to get care. Um, so we're, we end up being coordinating with specialists quite a lot. Yeah. So in terms of transportation, uh, in the setting of the emergency department, um, you know, we often end up flying people out, whether it's by helicopter or fixed wing, um, to our surrounding, um, hospitals, uh, other times, if the weather's not so great, we end up sending people by ground. Um, so it can be interesting when you're in the emergency department and um, you have somebody who's acutely ill and you don't have such great weather. Uh, it can sometimes take quite a while to get somebody out um, to um, another hospital where they can see specialists or, or have the, the certain care that they need. Thankfully, we do have some specialists who do come in and, uh, and work in the outpatient setting. So we have a cardiologist who comes once a month, flies his plane down here from Spokane to see patients. Um, we have an orthopedic doc. Well, I'll say we did um, have an orthopedic doc who has come in a couple times a month. Um, and, uh, and that's something that we've had on and off for quite some time. Uh, and, uh, and I guess that's a good illustration of, of sometimes things being a little bit inconsistent for us, too. We'll develop relationships with specialists that 
in the case of our cardiologists, has worked out for years and years. And uh, in the case of other specialists, has been more challenging to keep those relationships going based on um, based on whether people stick around or not or, or have other obligations that get in the way. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, other than cardiology, we've got an ENT doc who comes once a month. We've got a urologist who comes once a month. And... Um, and we've got an um, oncologist who comes uh, every other week as well um, to see patients here who are being treated for cancer. Um, but I imagine that there's times when those people can't be contacted or they're, you know, they're busy enough that they, they can't get back to you in a timely manner. And we're talking about an emergent situation. So that puts a lot on your shoulders. Do you have a reflection on that? And how do you kind of handle those situations? That's true. Um, there are times when we're waiting and waiting for a specialist to get back to us and, and we start to get pretty uncomfortable, pretty nervous um, with what we're dealing with. Uh, sometimes that means we end up calling around to multiple different hospitals trying to get a hold of somebody if uh, our first or second choice doesn't answer the phone. Um, and sometimes that means that we end up calling each other. And so there are other docs here in the community, thankfully, who have more experience than me or even folks who don't have as much experience than me um, are folks who all call and ask their opinion or sometimes even ask them to come and help me with a procedure. Uh, there have been a number of different times when I've been in that situation, needed an extra pair of hands because a procedure wasn't going as smoothly as I hoped it would or I hadn't done it before. And um, we're, we all have been in that same situation enough that we we know that if someone calls us, we're really needed because we don't do it a whole lot. And um, it's nice to have have colleagues to rely on. So I think it would be good to take a turn and let's discuss what your week looks like. A typical week could be working in the hospital most of the time. And the way we sort of structure our ER and our hospital work is that we'll do a 24-hour shift in the emergency department one day and, and do rounds in the hospital that same day. And then the next day, we'll do rounds in the hospital and um, and then take uh, take call for the clinic, which means admitting patients who are admitted through the clinic uh, and uh, and also being responsible for obstetrics uh, patients from our clinic. Uh, and then we'll repeat that cycle over again the next two days. Um, other weeks, I'm in the clinic most of the time, and I'll work somewhere between 7 or 8 a.m. in the morning to 6 or 7 p.m. at night, seeing patients all day. Um, and still yet other weeks, there'll be some combination of those things together, inpatient and clinic setting. Um, and then in my administrative role, I, uh, I spend on average of one day a week um, working as a medical director, which includes things like writing or updating policies, meeting with providers or other leadership folks in the clinic, um, or running meetings. So quite a variety there's not a lot of predictability to this job. Um, your schedule doesn't look the same from week to week, and what you do on a daily basis um, doesn't look the same from one day to the next. Where can others who, who want to do what you're doing find a job like this? I mean, who can find all these things in one place? And where is it? Because I want to know. <laughs> you know, I, I, my um, perception is that Jobs like this are becoming more and more scarce and that they're still out there. And so in rural settings like here um, and sort of, well, you might describe this more as a frontier setting we have for a long time, places that are really um, geographically isolated um, with small populations, 
um, are, are places where people are still doing this. Um, but I, I keep being told that we're a dying breed too. So it's hard to say. How do you keep up on emergency medicine literature, keep up on family medicine literature, keep up on pediatrics and OBGYN? I mean, how do you, and then do administrative as well. How do you find time for all that? That's a really, really important question. I'll say that one part of what helps is working with students and other learners. Um, so when when you're working with students as an attending, you, you get questions about you know why you're choosing to do that or, or choosing the therapy you're choosing or um, or choosing the type of evaluation you're choosing. And, and you have to be able to explain yourself to students uh, and learners. And, and so um, and so that sort of pushes you to keep up to date and then not just not just that sort of part of it but uh, also uh, i feel like i'm learning all the time from students and residents um, just about what the latest things are that are being done um, over in the academic center where they're working uh, or things that they've read about so that's been a big part of what pushes me to stay up to date um, other things that we do here um, are that we try to um, try to learn from each other. And between us providers, we have peer review sessions where we um, try to bring up current up-to-date literature to sort of back up the reviews that we're doing of, of each other's visits. Um, and then I listen to a couple of different podcasts that I, I find useful um, when I'm out for a run or mowing my lawn or things like that. It's a good time to catch up. Um, and and read on patients as well. So people, you know, when they come in with a variety of whatever conditions they come in with, uh, I'll try to do some reading on what they have done so it'll um, stick a little bit better. How do you keep up on your manual skills? Um, how do you keep up on the simulations um, and things like that around here? That's an important part for us too because, our, like I said earlier, our volume just isn't really high um, for especially emergency department and OB. And, uh, and so a lot of period of time may pass between when we do certain procedures. Um, courses like ATLS and also can be helpful because it's, it's a routine of every couple of years needing to go back and practice those skills and pass those tests. So uh, I found that helpful. Um, we've gotten a little bit better here over the past couple of years in doing more simulations. And um, we had a group come through last summer um, who um, who did some uh, some shoulder dystocia simulations for us, and they had models. And we all worked together with the the physicians and the nurses together on some simulations, which I, I found really helpful. Um, we do some um, some trauma code simulations here. Um, and uh, and all those things are helpful. We've got uh, a, uh, actually coming this weekend. We're doing a, a procedure workshop in the ER that's been put on by our ER director. And so I feel like when it comes to hands-on skills, um, whether it be actually procedure skills or whether it be sort of um, code situation type skills, doing that practice with the people that you're going to end up working with in the real life situation is very, very valuable um, because um, going away to a course for ATLS or something like that is, is helpful to practice those skills. But of course, you're practicing often with a, a lot of people who you don't really work with on a daily basis. And so really doing those simulations together and understanding um, how your colleagues respond um, in those situations and, 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 uh, and finding a way to effectively communicate together 
is really, really helpful. Um, so I wanted to go back and ask you a few more questions about your background. Um, I think this is kind of targeted to our younger or, you know, MS1, MS2 level students, or maybe even before. Um, but what was the path you took from college that got you into doing what you're doing now? Sure. Um, so, you know, back when I was in college, I was really uncertain about what I wanted to go with my career. Uh, I figured out probably halfway through that I wanted to become a physician. Um, and, uh, I was a sociology major back in college. Um, I did some volunteering in, in medical settings. Probably the most helpful for me was, uh, I volunteered in a suicide hotline. Um, and that, that's something that built, built in, I think some, some empathy skills and some listening skills for me and also conditioned me to, um, to, to being able to listen and, and, um, and feel more comfortable with people telling me some, some things that otherwise would have been pretty shocking or pretty, um, pretty sad about themselves or about their lives. And, and so felt like that was a pretty useful experience, but moving on, um, I went to medical school at a, um, an institution that where family medicine wasn't um, very prominent. I, I think I graduated with one other person who went into family medicine. Um, most of my um, my colleagues in medical school went into medical and surgical subspecialties and, and have since wound up working in large medical centers, academic medical centers. Um, so it was a little bit of a um, of a different path than I took from my colleagues. Um, but I will say that, that one thing that, um, really was helpful and, and helping me sort out where I wanted to go with my career was I ended up taking an elective rotation in rural medicine back between my third and fourth year of medical school. Um, and it, it was a phenomenal experience. I got to spend, um, about six weeks in rural Eastern Tennessee and, um, working with some physicians who were, uh, really, really great role models. And also we're doing, uh, practicing a kind of medicine that I just hadn't really been exposed to very much prior to that and really, really, um, felt connected to, um, partly because they were in rural settings where, um, I really appreciated the lifestyle that people were leading. Um, and, uh, and partly because they were getting back to that variety discussion, just practicing a, a wide variety of, of medicine that was really, really appealing to me. Um, so I guess that's probably, you know, the biggest, biggest reason prior to residency that I wound up taking the rural medicine path. That was Dr. DeYoung, as interviewed by Aaron Willey. Up next, I want to introduce Dr. Brian Frank and get his take on what it's like to work in the emergency department as a family medicine doc. So my name is Brian Frank. I'm a family medicine doctor at OHSU. Uh, I work at the Richmond Clinic, which is a federally qualified health center we see primarily Medicare, Medicaid patients, low-income families. And I do uh, research around health policy and health equity, specifically looking at um, small businesses to try and understand their return on investment for uh, investing in or, or um, enacting programs that benefit the health of their employees or the communities they serve. Coming out of residency, I didn't have any strong goal of going into uh, a practice where I'd be doing emergency medicine. But when the opportunity presented itself, it, it dawned on me that it would be a great way to keep up some of the skills that I don't use in everyday clinic 
um, both the uh, evaluation of more life-threatening conditions as well as some of the procedural skills that we don't do on a regular basis. Did you feel prepared to work in the emergency department with your family medicine training and residency? Coming out of a family medicine residency, most residents uh, or most graduates from a family medicine program across, across the country are well-trained to do emergency medicine from the get-go. Obviously, our volume isn't the same as someone who does an emergency medicine residency because we also have to do things like uh, care of women, pregnant women and um, inpatient medicine and uh, outpatient medicine. So our, our range is more broad, but our depth is, is not as great in emergency medicine. So in many respects, family medicine was staffing the emergency department long before emergency medicine came along. Do you feel that there's a division between the specialties? So, so the division between family medicine and emergency medicine uh, is, I think, akin to all the other divisions that are going on in medicine right now. It used to be that medicine was, uh, was much more based on very clear clinical skills, um, trying to diagnose a, a much smaller range of conditions. Uh, and, and now that we have developed a better understanding of things like genetics um, and uh, molecular uh, interactions within, within the body or, or between organ systems, the, the complexity of diagnoses has grown exponentially. I think that that having people who have experience with a depth of specific uh, conditions is helpful. Uh, I think that's true for emergency medicine, just like it is true for cardiology, just like it is true for surgery. But I don't think that it is. Uh, I don't think that it is necessary to the degree that we currently rely on it. So what I mean by that is, as a family medicine doctor, I've been practicing in a rural emergency department for the past six years. There are times that I have questions and there are things that I haven't seen before, but I can always call one of the close uh, tertiary care centers and get an opinion of, of a specialist. I don't feel that there's any barrier to me practicing effective emergency medicine with my training. What it does mean, though, is that I have to rely perhaps more than some of my emergency medicine trained colleagues on expert opinion, just having not seen as many cases. And this may be a little bit off topic, but I think one of the other, uh, one of the other downsides of the, the progressive subspecialization of medicine is that we come to believe, or we, we, we as a medical system have erroneously come to believe that um, more specialized means better care. And I think what we're finding out is that that's not the case, that just because you spend more money on someone's care or just because they see more specialized uh, physicians, they don't necessarily have better outcomes. And in fact, they end up costing the system more. Okay, so if you could, what would you tell someone that's trying to make the decision between a career in family medicine versus emergency medicine? The pros of choosing 
family medicine versus emergency medicine to me really come down to the the first part of the name of the specialty, which is family. Um, having worked in an emergency department, uh, in a hospital, inpatient setting, and in a clinic, I can tell you that there are times, as I said before, there are times that I have to rely on consultants to answer a very specific question about treatment that I may not know, having not had the, the depth of experience with that particular case. My training more than makes up for that deficit by knowing that patients have a longitudinal relationship with their primary care provider and that a lot of the medicine that often gets practiced in the hospital or in the emergency department and costs two or three times what it would in the clinic can actually take place in the clinic. So whereas I might not be as comfortable caring for someone with very complex cardiomyopathy in the emergency department and have to ask one of my cardiology colleagues to weigh in on what to do in the uh, acute setting, I'm much more comfortable discharging that patient with a clear follow-up with his or her primary care provider rather than trying to take care of all of the workup, the diagnosis, and the treatment inpatient. Let me back up. So the path that got me here uh, was not a straightforward one. I graduated from college in 1996, uh, and while I was waiting for my, at the time, girlfriend to graduate, I joined the uh, small town's volunteer fire department. The town was about a thousand people, and it was all volunteer fire department. In order to work at the fire department, uh, you had to have an EMT certification. So I did that and was really hooked by that experience. I had graduated from college with a degree in theater, thought that I was going to go on and work on Broadway or something as a, as a technician doing lights and sound and stage. Um, but once I got into the EMT class, the, I got bit by the bug. When I left uh, Ohio, um, I decided that what I would do instead is um, become a paramedic. So I started taking paramedic training, ended up moving to Arizona where my brother was going to college. And while he was doing that, I worked in an emergency department as an emergency medical, I mean, emergency room technician. Um, I was trying to figure out what the next step would be. I had thought about being a paramedic. That's what I was training for. Had given some consideration to uh, being a PA. And one night uh, at the end of a long shift, I was working with a PA in the emergency department. And we were talking about what my plans were. And he said, you know, I'm not sure that you're going to be happy being a PA. I, I think you're going to be happier if you go through medical school so that you can really uh, you can really be the one calling the shots. And I'm not sure what that said about uh, what he thought about my ego, but um, I went home and thought about it. Uh, and the next day I enrolled in a calculus class, which was the next of the prerequisites I needed, and decided to go into, um, into uh, physician training. Um, looking back on that experience and comparing it with the PAs that I work with, uh, I work with some physician assistants that are fantastic. They 
independently care for patients who are as complex uh, as any that I take care of, and they do it just as well. So as far as ability to care for complex patients or skill level, I don't see the difference. What I do, what I have found is the difference for me is the ability to utilize my degree in non-clinical ways. So I mentioned before doing research in health policy. It is something that you certainly could do as a PA or an NP or even a non-clinical practitioner, but there is a certain amount of clout that both the lay public and uh, prof- other professionals give to someone with an MD after his or her name that automatically allows you into places that you might not automatically get to go without that MD. So if I was to do this all over again, I think I would choose the same path. I might choose to go into policy work earlier on. It took me six, seven years to, to find where I ultimately wanted to be. But, but as far as the, the degree I would pursue, I, I, would, I would become a physician again. Uh, but, but to say this again, if you are thinking about what you want to do with your future and you're worried that being a PA won't be, quote, good enough, I would absolutely challenge that belief. So Dr. Frank was kind enough to introduce his thought process into becoming a doctor vice a PA along his training path. And up next, I'm going to introduce you to Mr. Eric Holden. Eric is a PA locally up here in the Northwest. And I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance. Our budget here is a little limited at EmailCast. And uh, the recording environment for this next piece is not exactly going to impress you audiophiles out there. But if you can bear with me, I'll introduce Eric. So Eric, can you tell me a little bit about your path towards becoming a physician's assistant? Okay, Uh, so it's physician assistant, no apostrophe S. So um, my father was a physician, so I always was interested in medicine. Uh, He had some issues with work-life balance, so it wasn't... uh, it wasn't something that looked like it would be possible for me to do as I was growing up as a kid because I thought of physicians as people who either had families or had jobs and not both. Uh, so I was looking into alternate pathways. Uh, in high school, I did an EMT program my senior year in high school that was uh, a semester long. It was Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 6 to 9.30 for a semester in high school. Uh, and then when I started college at the University of California at Santa Cruz, I worked as an ER tech um, about 20 or 30 hours a week, mostly on the weekends. Um, while I was going through just to kind of get some experience in emergency medicine. Uh, At that point, I had a goal of becoming a paramedic. Uh, So when I finished my degree at Santa Cruz in medical anthropology, I went directly into paramedic school. And I worked as a paramedic for several years in Los Angeles and in Philadelphia. Uh, At at that point, I became introduced to the concept of the physician assistant profession. Uh, I worked with a lot of PAs, and I saw them working side by side with physicians, doing a lot of the same things, and it looked like a good alternative career. And a lot of similar kind of scope of practice um, looked like a good option. So uh, I attended the PA program at Hahnemann University in Philadelphia. It's now Drexel. Uh, they had an option at that time for a three-year program instead of two years, where the first year was split in half and you could work part-time. So I continued to work as a paramedic for the first two years and then did uh, a full-time third year for what would have normally been a full-time second year. Uh, since then, I've worked uh, in a variety of emergency medicine settings in California and Oregon and in Washington, and I currently work exclusively rural critical access 24-hour shifts. 
uh, where I'm the only provider in the hospital, which is really quite a lot of fun. Uh, so if I'm not there, uh, on other shifts, there's either another emergency medicine PA or a physician. So we have kind of interchangeable uh, scope of practice and autonomy. So I see every patient, I do every procedure, I intubate, I cardiovert, I run codes, chest tubes, everything an emergency physician would do in that setting. Uh, fairly low volume setting. Um, we see about 12 to 15 patients in 24 hours. So there's the opportunity for a lot of downtime. Um, I've also been involved with uh, a group called New York City Medics, NYC Medics. Uh, and I've been to Haiti with them after the earthquake in 2010. I went to Nepal with them in 2015 after their earthquake. And then I was also in Mosul last year, June and July of last year, uh, to work at a trauma stabilization point uh, sponsored by the World Health Organization. So trying to kind of do all the different things you can do in the field of emergency medicine without a doctorate. So without a, you know, an MD or a DO. Okay, so you sold me on what a PA can do. That's, that's pretty impressive background. Now tell me, for those of us that aren't familiar with the training program, what is that like? And is it specific to going into emergency medicine? Uh, it's not specific. It's a generalist degree, like, like becoming an MD or a DO. You do background in basic medical sciences. It's often compared to the second and third year of medical school. Uh, so at my program, we actually did, we were interchangeable with the third year medical students on rotations. They were either PA2 or MS3 slots because uh, we had a medical school there as well as a PA program. Our uh, first year is kind of a hybrid of your first and second year, um, balanced more towards the second year. We don't do as in-depth with the basic medical sciences, histology, embryology, neuroanatomy, that kind of stuff. Um, it's more kind of a, like a practical training, uh, less, um, less philosophical background in medicine. There's now the option for people to do residencies or fellowships, post-grad programs. As a PA also, they're typically 12 to 18 months long. That's a relatively new thing. Um, they haven't been around all that long. So I would have done one in emergency medicine if there had been one when I graduated, but there were no emergency medicine fellowships for PAs at that point. There are now 30 of them nationwide. Okay, and, and more generalistically, getting into the PA program, um, how is that path different your take as far as going into a PA versus going into a medicine program? So uh, today the backgrounds are very similar. When I went to PA school, uh, I started PA school in 1993, we weren't required to have organic chemistry or biochemistry. Those are now prereqs for PA school. So pretty much to get into a PA program today, it's essentially a pre-med pathway. Uh, most people are biology majors today. They have all the, all the typical physics and biology and chemistry and math prerequisites. Uh, we don't take the MCAT, we take the GRE exam instead. Okay, and if you could for a second, what would you weigh the pros and cons of doing the PA path versus doing the MP path? Uh, so on the pro side, it's certainly a shorter program, um, and you don't have to take the MCAT, which is, which is a big plus. Uh, although there are now pathways for PAs to become physicians uh, through bridge programs without having to take the MCAT, which is nice. Um, the Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine um, in Pennsylvania has a bridge program for PAs that uh, admits PAs without the MCAT just based on the strength of your prior undergraduate work and your PA work, um, and you do a three-year program. You essentially get rid of the third year of medical school and do the first, second, and fourth years. The, the fourth year is essentially a hybrid year, mostly, mostly specialty stuff. They give you credit for a lot of your third-year specialty rotations. Um, so PA scheduling and MD scheduling is fairly similar uh, on, the, on the job side once you're working. Um, I think most PAs I know actually work more than the physicians uh, in any given specialty, uh, with the possible exception of surgery, because uh, typically the, the positions PAs get are the hours and the places where physicians don't want to go. 
So, um, you know, it's a lot of nights, a lot of weekends, a lot of holidays, a lot of rural, a lot of inner city. Um, there, you know, HIV clinics, drug rehab kind of things, inner city emergency departments, uh, places that, that physicians don't dream of going are kind of the underserved places that a lot of PAs find themselves in. Um, so there's certainly plenty of work for PAs. There's, there's no shortage of jobs anywhere, which is nice. Um, you know, you, you make a pretty good income. Um, you know, a, a typical income now for a new grad PA is around $90,000 uh, with potential to, you know, if you really want to work a lot, you can make $200,000, which is, you know, a pretty good income if you have a lot less debt. Um, less debt is also a significant ad advantage to the PA side versus the MD side. You know, you're, you're working sooner as a PA. Um, a lot of women like uh, taking the PA route instead of the MD route because they feel it will give them more time to have children and raise families. Um, there was a study done a year or two ago that actually said that uh, given the time that the average uh, woman takes off to have children, if they work as a PA during the course of their career versus a family physician, they actually make more money as a PA over the course of their career because of those extra years that they can work that they're not having to do residency and fellowship and things of that nature, and, uh, and they don't have the, the loans to pay back. So, so on, the, on the downside... Um, you know, you're not being a physician. There's at, at the present time, there's someone always uh, indirectly responsible for your work. Uh, so, in some settings, that means you're presenting every patient, um, uh, you know, before the patient even goes home. So, uh, as a new graduate, I think that's a great idea. When you're several years out of school, or if you're uh, if you've been doing a specialty for a long time and you're still in in that kind of setting, that that gets kind of old. You know, if, I can't imagine being 60 years old and presenting to a, a 30 year old attending. You know, if I've been working in that specialty for 30 years, for example. On the downside, if, if, for example, he were to have a heart attack tonight, I couldn't go to work tomorrow. So, so that's a downside. So uh, there is a movement right now in the PA profession uh, called Optimal Team Practice. Uh, the original name for that was, um, was uh, Full Practice and Responsibility. The, the concept behind that is that we would work uh, on teams with physicians but not have to have a designated physician supervisor. So if something happened like your sponsoring physician died, you could continue to work and uh, you know, essentially collaborate with other uh, physicians on the team. Uh, and that has the potential to um, increase job opportunities for PAs, especially in rural areas. Uh, one of the big problems right now is that there are lots of little tiny towns that would love to have a PA go work in family medicine, for example, but they don't have a family physician out there who can you know, come out there the required number of times per month or be able to supervise as needed. This would allow for um, more of a collaborative model, much like the nurse practitioners use. Some physicians are hesitant to work with PAs because they're concerned that if something goes wrong with a patient seen by a PA, they'll be held liable for it uh, because they signed the chart or they, uh, they knew about it in retrospect. Um, so realistically, the way this has worked out in the courts is that it's very similar to what happens with nurse practitioners. If there's a physician present in the emergency department and the patient is seen by a PA or an NP, whether or not the physician was involved at all, they still have potential liability because they were in charge of the department at the time. Um, and there's really no difference in that between whether it's a, quote, independent nurse practitioner or a, a PA who's supervised or sponsored. Uh, but there are, are groups um, who are hesitant to hire PAs just because of that perceived liability that exists. So uh, on the con side of becoming a PA, uh, the main issues involve respect, unfortunately. So uh, there's a subset of patients who don't want to be seen by a PA or a nurse practitioner. There's a subset of physicians who don't want to talk to PAs or physicians or, uh, or nurse practitioners. Uh, it, 
especially early on in my career, it wasn't uncommon to, to call a hospitalist, for example, to, to try and get a patient admitted, and they would tell me, oh, I don't talk to PAs, go have a physician examine the patient, have them call me back, and then they'd hang up the phone on me. So, you know, and if that happens, you know, multiple times, it kind of gets discouraging. It's, it's really discouraging if somebody doesn't want to talk to you just because of the initials after your name. That was Eric Holden sharing his thoughts on the ups and downs of the physician assistant route to the ED. Up next, I'd like to introduce Dr. Nick Gideons, a family medicine doctor, and his feelings on working in some of the more isolated communities in Oregon. Um, my name is Nick Gideons, MD. I'm an assistant professor of family medicine at Oregon Health and Sciences University. Um, and practiced for eight years in Cottage Grove, Oregon, as a, a rural family doc. Pretty broad scope of practice. Um, by which we mean not only obstetrics, but I was doing my own C-sections, for example. Um, began covering the emergency room there. Um, had some experiences covering the emergency room in a moonlighting situation during my senior year of residency, 93-94. Covering the hospital and emergency room in John Day, Oregon. Um, so we're not even generally a helicopter transport. We're a fixed-wing transport. Um, we're three to four hours by road from the nearest um, a secondary medical center in Bend. Um, so, uh, so you're definitely out there on your lonesome when you are. Perfect. Um, so if you don't mind talking a little bit more about what first you brought you to the emergency department or how you got interested in it. Sure. Um, the first time I uh, really thought about doing some emergency medicine skills, in addition to, you know, rotations in medical school, we had rotations as part of broad family medicine training. Um, I don't think those were, you know, particularly why I would have thought I'd like to do that because they were uh, relatively early in our residency training, sort of skills acquisition that were applied broadly and not necessarily skills that you felt you had at the month at the end of a month long rotation. Um, but uh, one of the nurses on the mother baby unit, her partner was the medical director, managing doctor, if you will, at Seaside Providence, which is a, a small community hospital on the coast and really quite close to Portland. It's about the closest, it's definitely like the, the closest hospital on the coast. Um, and she mentioned that they, you know, sometimes had family medicine docs as moonlighters or residents as moonlighting, um, and that she thought I might like that opportunity. I think I think she probably just liked my doctrine in general rather than having any specific idea about how I would function in that environment. Um, and I really liked it. I liked the, um, uh, it was certainly a chance to moonlight. Um, and, you know, I, I had two children while in residency. We definitely could use the funds. Um, but I think the bigger part was uh, that's sort of the buck stops here responsibility level. Um, now there were admitting doctors on call, though generally I would admit the patient and care for them over the weekend until the on-call doctors came on. Um, and there was a there's usually a surgeon on call as well, so it's not like there wasn't any help available. Um, but I remember just a, a number of sort of first experiences there um, that um, even from things that were not necessarily emergency related, like you know actually staining and diagnosing an acute gonorrhea. Um, but also, you know, really sick patients doing venous cut down um, and getting people ready for transfer. Um, uh, some, uh, you know, acute abdominal cases that I would then be able to assist in the OR um, uh, while covering the emergency room, some of that stuff um, that, that, that felt like it was really skill consolidating and um, bringing out, out the part that I think in lots of 
Um, not all by far, but um, lots of physicians you know, are looking for some acuity, some higher intensity, more immediate decision-making work. Um, um, so that was very attractive, and I think at that point felt consolidating enough in my skill set that um, I felt that it was responsible of me to, to cover that, that I had the skill set that was needed. Um, I don't think guilty is the right word, but felt like there was some unmet need in, in rural communities, that the family docs who were taking jobs in places like John Day were you know, really doing a good service. Um, and I know that's recognized. I remember when I received my Oregon license, they... You know, had they sort of said, everyone who's in Portland, you know, everybody stand up, and everyone who's practicing in Portland sit down, and half the room sat down, right? And then everyone who's practicing within, you know, 15 miles of I-5 sit down. That was pretty much everyone. And there were the few people left standing around the room. They're like, everyone else applaud them because they're doing the work that we need the most, you know, community. Okay, and do you have any kind of um, litmus for how many family docs end up either routinely rotating in the emergency department as part of their career? No, I wonder, I have no idea what that statistic would be. Um, I think at times I think it should be higher um, because uh, especially in a community like Cottage Grove or John Day, um, I often feel that the nursing staff and the other folks who are there full-time appreciate a family doctor's perspective in terms of comfort that follow-up can occur, right? Um, Comfort in... Uh, allowing some uncertainty of diagnosis or not maybe ordering quite as many tests, for example, um, just based on the breadth of our clinic experience, you know, particularly for the lower acuity cases. Right. And what do you think is uh, the delineating factor between the branch of emergency medicine, which is relatively new um, as far as uh, specialties out there, compared to practicing in the emergency department as a family doc? Sure. Sure. There's no doubt in my mind. Um, let me use a, I mean, to use a real concrete example. I think emergency medicine has picked up on bedside ultrasound um, in a formalized and seriously trained way that my field has been slower to do. Um, the biggest difference is that continuity relationship. I feel so privileged that I can have a view of, let's say, alcoholism and its impact on the health system that I think is different than my emergency medicine colleagues because I see them after they sober up, right? Um, or that, you know, brittle, uncontrolled diabetic. I see them when they kind of get a plan together that works for them. Um, I get to see people get better. That was Dr. Nick Gideons. Now that you've heard their take on what it is like to practice family medicine in the emergency department in the rural setting, I wanted to share a few of their war stories from the time in the practice. Later, we'll hear some advice that they have for aspiring pre-meds and medical students. And finally, we'll wrap up with some goodies from the ASEP report card we talked about earlier in the show. Dr. Brian Frank again. War stories working in the the urban setting are are mostly about the the, the grit of the patients that I care for. it's in uh, it's in ranch country um, in eastern Oregon, uh, and so I, you know, the people that come in really want to get their problems addressed so that they can get back to their lives. Uh, I think about a patient that I cared for within the first year out of residency who came in having uh, cut through uh, the majority of his thumb on a table saw. Um, he'd uh, severed the flexor tendon, um, just missed the arteries and nerves. Um, and so I called the hand surgeon 
uh, the tertiary care center and talked with him. And, you know, he felt it would be appropriate for the patient to get seen and follow up. And I went back and told that to the patient. And he said, look, I don't have time. I have to, you know, we're in the middle of bailing season. I have to get back to work. Sew it back together, do your best, and I'll be on my way. And so I did what I could. Obviously, I, you know, consulted with uh, with the resources that I had available to make sure that I was doing the technique correctly. Um, so it is tendon back together and let him go out the door, uh, in, in a splint. Um, and I, I, I never did hear back from him, but he was adamant, you know, despite the full litany of, uh, of CYA conversations I had with him, um, that, that he was going to get it cared for, or he was just going to go home and tape it up. Um, I think of another patient who came in having just gotten bucked off his horse. Uh, he, fractured seven ribs on uh, the left side of his chest uh, and was in the process of dropping his lung and required a, a chest tube. He was 77. He looked like he was about 50. Uh, six foot tall, muscular, tanned. He, he asked me for Tylenol because he felt like his pain was a little bit out of control. This was before I saw his x-ray. Uh, when I saw his x-ray, I went back in and double-checked, and he had gotten the Tylenol and was feeling much better. Um, and, you know, I, I see patient after patient after patient like that who, who come in with these injuries that you would think would be completely debilitating, and yet their focus is not on how do you control my pain? How do you make sure that I am going to be well taken care of and be hospitalized until I recover? It's how can you best treat me quickly so I can get back about, about my job that, you know, this guy ended up getting a chest tube and ultimately got flown out. Um, but I think if he'd had it his way, I would have put a couple of pieces of tape on his chest wall and let him go out the door. Uh, I, I like to say that every weekend I'll get at least one horse wreck, um, you know, horse-related injury. Um, I think fairly recently I learned how much more dangerous cows can be than horses. I don't see as many cow wrecks, but if you're in close proximity to a cow, it's a little easier to get hurt, I think. They're not as socialized to people as horses are. Um, this last Christmas, a uh, gentleman, um, I think really foolishly not wearing a helmet, snowmobiling, um, snow machining. Um, missed the cattle gate and hit the barbed wire section next to it. I'm guessing his vision was impaired by lack of head protection and appropriate face coverage, um, and that he didn't see that he was just one segment over from the cattle gate and uh, had a severe enough skull fracture to have pneumocephaly, um, had a couple of rib fractures, had a small pneumothorax, which comes into play when you're doing air transport um, and the decision whether to chest tube or not. Um, definitely did not feel that it needed a chest tube other than the concern for air transport and pressure differentials. Um, and our hard part was arranging transport. We had a flight lined up, a uh, long conversation with three or four doctors on the phone, each taking a little piece of it, right? There's the ENT guy, there's the neurosurgeon, there's the trauma surgeon on trauma call and the ER docs, like four people I was talking to in our usual referral center, Bend, Oregon. And, you know, it was sort of around, did they want the case? And, you know, I, I just needed a disposition. I'd had transport arranged, where are we going? Um, and ultimately... It was clear they weren't really wanting to take the case. So, so Oregon Health and Science came up next. It was so nice. So one phone call to the emergency room. They accepted the patient, 
didn't need that sort of cast of thousands, knew they'd have the capabilities. Um, and then we hung up the phone, and it turned out that the pilot that had been insured for our transport had then, by the time of all this, had gone out on another flight, um, and we had no transport. Um, because the secondary and third pilots were not comfortable landing in John Day in current weather positions. Now, of course, I'm advocating, like, I'm, I'm fairly worried about this patient. I did not think putting him in ground transport for a four-hour transport to an airfield from which he would then fly to Oregon um, was a very safe or stable situation. Um, uh, you know, if we had to keep him, we would, but I didn't see anything good coming out of delay. Um, and, you know, were he to develop more ongoing complications or particularly I was worried about a potential for a declining uh, coma score. Um, not the potential, the beginning to see a declining coma score. Um, uh, where would things be, you know, that many hours later? Um, ultimately what happened is the first pilot finished his run, still had enough hours left on his clock to, to consider the flight. He called me personally and wanted to be sure I could ensure a 16-foot standing ladder um, be available because he needed to bring his own de-icer and wanted to be able to de-ice in that situation. And, you know, this is the kind of story you really don't want anyone to do something they're not comfortable doing, but he was pretty confident, and the transport did occur that night. Um, the patient did well. I was, you know, because I work here, I was able to visit him in the hospital a few days later um, after his multiple surgeries. That was Dr. Gideon's again. Now, the world is full of unsolicited advice, or in this case, avidly solicited. Here's Dr. DeYoung with Aaron Willie again. So I think I'll just close out with asking, what general advice do you have for those just starting training in medical school or those even just now considering a career in medicine? I think it's really important when you're first getting into medical school or even considering it to, to reflect on, on what your um, priorities are and, um, and understand that choosing medicine as a career is um, is a step into a career that's going to take up a lot of your time, a lot of your effort, um, and and that's going to start in medical school, maybe even before medical school, and it's going to continue in residency, and it's going to continue after residency as well. There's a lot that's demanded of a physician, a lot that's expected of a physician. That includes not only just um, just the time you put in, um, but it also includes things like professionalism um, at your job and in your community. And if you don't feel prepared to sort of take all that on, it can be really, really a, a huge barrier to feeling um, successful and feeling fulfilled. And if, on the other hand, you're totally passionate and excited about doing this work, um, then throw yourself in full bore and you will undoubtedly feel f fulfilled in the work that you do. Um, and you'll be very happy that you've chosen to go that way. So if I'm if I'm uh, if I'm advising someone on what to choose as a specialty, the number one predictor of someone choosing a specialty is uh, location, and number two is the people that they're around. Right. So you're if you're if you're a medical student. Look at the people that you work with in all of your rotations. Decide whether you enjoy spending time with them. Decide if you have similarities uh, and um, areas where you feel like you can connect with them. If you do, that's probably the right specialty. If you don't, then consider another one. If you really feel like you're struggling between 
specifically family medicine and emergency medicine, I would say, do you have more interest in taking care of acutely life-threatening or at least uh, highly morbid situations and or conditions, or do you have a greater interest in taking care of someone over the long over the long haul? A, a good way to look at this is if you discharge somebody from the emergency department and you find yourself wondering about every patient that you discharged and looking in the chart and trying to follow up on what's happened with them, consider taking a second look at family medicine. You'll still continue to gain the skills necessary to work in an emergency department, but you'll also have the experience of following those people in the outpatient setting to see what their disease looks like on a day-to-day basis. And it gives you greater comfort in an ability to say, this acute situation needs to be dealt with emergently, but once we've gotten this stabilized, they don't have to be admitted to the hospital. They can go see their primary care provider in the outpatient setting, and their their outcomes will be equivalent. It'll just cost the system a lot less money. I obviously, uh, in in the medical profession, we are surrounded by people who are more than happy to give advice at the drop of a hat. Um, I think as physicians, we really enjoy the sound of our own voice, especially when we think it sounds smart. Um, so there's no shortage of advice that I've gotten, but actually I think the best advice that I got, uh, was from my dad. I was thinking about what I wanted to do, um, and was considering a number of different options for professions, um, within medicine. And he said to me, go to medical school because and being an MD will open doors for you that other uh, that other degrees may not. And I, uh, you know, we it's exactly what what I found is that being an MD puts puts you in a position where you can um, you can branch out into areas that are medicine adjacent, but not directly related, uh, and gives you sufficient respect in other professions that you can, uh, you can start to make a difference in areas that aren't directly related to clinical or hospital care. It allows you to go into, uh, community organizing and be a trusted community partner, especially as a primary care provider. It allows you to, um, be seen as, uh, an expert or at least a valued source uh, for issues of health policy, issues of, um, of equity, uh, for academic work. Again, all medicine adjacent, but, um, but having that degree gives you enough clout that you can, um, you don't have to get another degree to, to do some of that extra work. Now, that requires that you as a physician hold yourself to a high enough standard that you understand those topics that you're getting yourself into, and that's the responsibility of the individual. But uh, but you are allowed the opportunity to try, uh, to try in those other realms. As far as the worst advice I got, it was not intended to be bad advice. And it was intended, it it was, the the advice was given with the best of intentions. I think it was bad advice, not because it necessarily 
would have gotten me into trouble or would have negatively affected my career, but I think it reflects an older view of medicine that we need to be looking at very seriously. We're starting to recognize uh, the importance of physician or healthcare provider wellness. We're starting to understand that there is such a thing as compassion burnout, compassion fatigue. We're starting to understand that in order to provide adequate patient care, we as caregivers need to be well and need to be well taken care of. When I was a fourth-year medical student and was starting to put together my um, my uh, application packet for residency, I met with an advisor to go over some ideas for my application. The first draft of my personal statement talked about an experience I had almost 20 years ago uh, where I went through a pretty severe depression. It uh, came out of nowhere uh, as far as I understood at the time. Looking back, it's much clearer on, on the factors leading up to it, but um, it took me by surprise, and it, it took me a good three years to get through it with a lot of work. I saw that as an accomplishment on my part, and I saw that as an important part of my journey, getting to a better understanding of myself, which in turn allowed me to better empathize with patients who were struggling. The person that I, the advisor that I was talking to about the personal statement suggested that I rewrite it. She suggested that I not mention depression because it could potentially be a barrier for me getting into residency. It belies a fundamental flaw in the way that we view our profession and especially in the way that we view our trainees. I think we still expect them to be uh, infallible and impenetrable uh, and not look for the kind of emotional support that any other person uh, deserves when going through a process that is as challenging as medical training. I think a better approach to someone who is struggling or who has struggled with depression, whether clinical or purely situational, is to acknowledge the strength that it uh, imbues into that person, the, the benefit that that person has of going through that struggle, and then to just provide support, uh, knowing that we all struggle in this process and we all need to be there for each other. We, we need to see stress um, and struggle not as a failure, but as a building block to becoming a better caregiver. Uh, medicine is improvisational, so um, just say yes. Um, when opportunities present for a training opportunity or um, uh, taking something a little bit further, say yes. Um, uh, I might be covering the emergency room and we'll diagnose the foreign body, second the esophagus, and the surgeon's coming in to retrieve it endoscopically. If I'm not busy, I want to go in and just watch that happen, right? There may be a time when I need to do that, or at the very least, I'm going to have a much deeper impression of not only the case, the diagnosis, what actually came of it, um, but um, what, uh, 
what the patient will experience, even if I'm just relating to them, um, what they're about to experience when, um, when their definitive treatment occurs. Um, I think it's, I'm glad that it's becoming a more taught skill to um, do some self-compassion. I think that's a particularly important skill um, that's easy to overlook when we also need high standards and a high critical approach and a critical mind and thinking and um, a clear path towards um, letting ourselves and our colleagues know when our performance could be better. Um, so that's an imbalance. It's a tension. Um, I am at a fortunate point in my career in my mid-later 50s where a few years ago I would have said I like everything I do, but I need about 20% less. I'm kind of at that point right now where I'm about that 100%. In other words, I feel fully utilized and employed, but not overstretched. Um, and that's a really nice place to be. I can tolerate a lot of bad events. Because, <laughs> um, you know, we're hanging out with sick people. Bad stuff happens. Um, I, don't think, I, I don't think you're doing yourself a service if you shy away from acuity in the service of burnout prevention. I mean, we're here at the service of our patients, and sometimes our patients need us when bad stuff is happening, right? And it's going to happen no matter what we do. Um, so uh, um, get enough sleep, be compassionate to yourself, um, but show up even when bad stuff's going to happen. Don't be scared of acuity. Um, don't be scared of bad outcomes. In fact, that's all the more reason to stay and engage um, in, in them, um, even if that includes going to your patient's funeral. Um, uh, here's another one. Um, I have known some family physicians who um, somewhat tiring of the uh, daily routine and responsibility, and particularly the um, sometimes personal demands that continuity care, that you know, staying responsible for your patients over time can be. Folks who you know starting to think, no, I really wish I could just leave the job at the office um, and go into emergency or urgent care medicine um, as an approach to solving that problem. Maybe thinking they'll spend more time with their families. Um, uh, that didn't work necessarily so well because when you think that through a little bit, uh, a lot of busy urgent care and emergency room hours are in the afternoon and evening hours um, and the need to cover nights and weekends. Um, so while they were sort of happy to give up on the nine to five, they found their time availability for family time was less um, because plenty of the shifts they would pull would be non nine to five hours. Um, so a fairly small point, but one worth making. So finally, now that it's the end of the show, I wanted to go over the ASAP report card from 2014. We should be due out for a new one here in another year or so. The salient points, I'm going to start with the national grade by category. Overall, we had a D plus. Access to emergency care was a D minus. Quality and patient safety was a C. Medical liability environment, C minus. Public health and injury prevention, a C. And disaster preparedness was C minus. Those are the national averages. Oregon, in comparison, Pretty much ranked similarly. We got a D minus in access to emergency care with more or less C's and C minuses overall. That landed us a D plus for our overall grade. And now I'm sure you're curious. The uh, way this is set up is they have 136 objective measures and they basically spread it out as a curve. So we're literally graded on a curve. I guess that's a good thing. Looking at the rest of the states, the grades, uh, there was only one F. That was Wyoming. Oregon was a D, like the vast majority of the country. Nebraska, Maine, and Massachusetts were the only Bs. So the top-ranking states, not a huge difference, uh, but District of Columbia, Massachusetts, Maine, Nebraska, Colorado, and Pennsylvania. The bottom-ranked states, 
Wyoming, Arkansas, New Mexico, Montana, Kentucky, Michigan, Illinois, Alabama, Louisiana, and unfortunately, Alaska, which I guess Louisiana, Alaska tied for 42nd place. The big highlights from Oregon data is that uh, seatbelt laws likely contributed to the third highest seatbelt use rate in the country. That's at 96.6% for those of you counting. And the 10th lowest traffic fatality rate at 6.5 per uh, per 100,000. Other benefits were apparently we have the lowest rate of childhood obesity at 9.9%. Some of the things that hurt us, though, only 93.7% of children can see a provider when needed, putting us the third worst in the nation for this particular measure. And as far as the number of staffed inpatient beds per 100,000, we're at 204, which is really low. And we have the fourth fewest psychiatric beds in the country at 8.7 per 100,000. Our disaster preparedness is probably our worst. For instance, the state, we haven't, we haven't incorporated patients dependent on medicine for chronic conditions, patient dependent on dialysis, or patients on psychotropic medication in a medical response plan, which is unfortunate. We also had the sixth lowest bed surge capacity in the nation with 304 per 100 million people. We have an unfavorable medical liability environment, although if you dig into this article where they're basing this off of might be of some uh, argument. But our average malpractice award is a little bit uh, sketchy. So the average uh, award skyrocketed from $250,000 in the previous report card Latest is 370,000, a 48% increase despite a little change in the number of malpractice awards or payments, which is about 1.3 per 100,000 people. Our childhood immunizations, as if you've been reading the, uh, the news, has plummeted since the last report card. We were at 78.8, we're now at 67%. And our influenza vaccination rate among the elderly is also very poor, at about 54% currently, down from 71%. And that's pretty much the highlights from Oregon. You can read more about this in the show notes. So I'm curious if uh, listening to this episode will change your mind on your views towards emergency medicine, your path towards emergency medicine, or whether you'll consider a career in family medicine. Regardless, thanks for listening to another episode of EMAcast. I know this has been a little bit of a long episode, but thanks again. This is Sam signing out.